So if we view data as the capital asset of the 21st century, and if we decided back in the 19th century that, for instance, Rockefeller shouldn't be able to hoard all the oil in the country, then uh, we ought to have the same kind of thinking that says that you shouldn't have a handful of companies that can hoard all of the 21st century assets. Hi, everybody. This is How Tech Becomes Law, a public interest tech podcast about technology, public policy, and career advice. We are your co-hosts, Jingyan Zhang and Drew Gupta. This week, we have a conversation with Tom Wheeler, the former chair of the Federal Communication Commission, about how to regulate social media platforms. Tom Wheeler served as the chairman of the FCC from 2013 to 2017 under President Obama. For more than three decades, Wheeler has been involved with new telecommunications networks and services, experiencing the revolution in telecommunications as a policy expert, advocate, and businessman. As an entrepreneur, he started and helped start multiple companies offering cable, wireless, and video communication services. He's currently a senior fellow at Harvard Kennedy School's Masaba Ramani Center for Business and Government and a senior fellow at HKS's Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. He's also a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. Hey, thank you so much, Tom, for joining. It's fantastic to meet you. How are you doing today? Drew and Jen, it's uh, good to be with uh, both of you. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about kind of what you were up to at, at the FCC and some key achievements? Well, it was a great privilege to be at the FCC under President Obama at, at that particular point in time, because there were so many things happening. I mean, I, I think if you look four major efforts that we had were obviously we, we put the net neutrality rules. We put privacy rules in place. We changed the orientation um, of the agency insofar as to, as an expectation of cybersecurity and the, and the, the role in protecting the cybersecurity of networks. And we connected the classrooms of America's schools with high-speed broadband. Unfortunately, the first three of those net neutrality, privacy, and cyber protections all ended up getting undone by the Trump administration when they came in. But hopefully with President Biden at the helm and Jessica Rosenworcel as the new chairwoman of the FCC, we'll be able to see some progress fixing that situation. Specifically, what do you see going forward in terms of both actions that can be taken by the FCC and other federal agencies around not just regulating traditional telecoms, but also regulating the way that we communicate through social media platforms and other online platforms? It's a great question, Jen, and the and the, the the challenge is that the statutes that created the FCC or the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, were all written in the industrial era, and and did not anticipate the kinds of things that we're seeing right now, where where digital and the so-called collapse of the stack means that it's pretty hard to separate the network function 
from the application function. And, and yet our laws don't think that way. I mean, one of the things that the networks used to argue to us <clears throat> when we were talking about net neutrality is, oh, you can't make, put these requirements on us because the edge providers don't have the same requirements, or you can't require this kind of privacy protections from us because Google and, and, and Facebook don't have to have these. Well, the answer is that we only had authority over the networks. We didn't have authority over the edge providers and, um, and that's a problem, but it is not an excuse and that, that what I was frankly hoping for instance, with privacy was that the rules that we put in place for the networks would become models for other federal agencies to adopt for the platforms didn't come to pass. So I know, I guess, along those lines that you're working on a proposal for maybe key action items that future regulations need to encompass. Can you speak a little bit more towards what you're working on with that team of scholars at Harvard? Is there anything in particular that you'd like to highlight? Sure. The, so when we were at Shorenstein, Phil Verveer and Gene Kibbelman and I <clears throat> created a proposal for a digital platform agency that was designed to cut through the, the situation that I was referencing a moment ago, at least in so far as the platforms are concerned and, and to, to do three things, I guess. First is to create a focused federal role in oversight of the systemically important digital platforms. Second is to make sure that there is to propose a different way of, 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 of how that regulation should work. In other words, to, 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 to break away from the, the model that was used in, in the industrial era. And, and the third was to, to try and have a focus on privacy, competition, and what we call truth and trust, rather than going across the, the whole gamut of, well, any topic that could be, that, that could be regulated. So I'm curious if you can talk more about what this new model regulation could look like, right? I mean, especially someone who have worked at the FCC and have worked on a great deal on telecoms of yeah. the concern that of the industrial era kind of policies is making sure everyone gets access that when you uh, have a phone available or internet connection available, that you can have affordable access to those tools. Now with social media, access isn't necessarily the question in terms of anyone can create an account, but really it is about what kind of experience that you have once you're on those accounts. That's a very different type of thing for a regulator to tackle. And what are your thoughts on then, if you have this agency be created, how can they go about trying to address those problems? Well, this goes to the heart of 
the new regulatory paradigm, if you will, that we proposed, which is one of the great successes of the digital era has been how technology standards have been used to make sure that there was interoperability among all the various new capabilities and, and, and the multi-stakeholder approach to building those standards. But those are standards about how something works, not what it does or what the effects of it are. And so our thought is that, that we need to have a new regulatory approach that cleaves from the micromanagement, which was how industrial regulation was done and moves more to a risk management structure that utilizes this kind of multi-stakeholder process. So what we proposed was that we need to have a, a multi-stakeholder process that is called by the government, participated in by the government, approved by the government and enforced by the government, but which as a result of the agility of the process is able to keep up with changes and not inhibit innovation. Let me give you a specific example. We were able to move in the mobile phone world from 1G to 2G to 3G to 4G to 5G. And now they're working on the 6G standard, which was how does the operations of mobile networks keep up with the increasing ability of standards our increasing ability of the technology and that kind of agility is what has been absent in regulation. Regulation has typically been here is what you will do and how you will do it. And so we were trying to say that, that we want to make sure that regulation doesn't inhibit innovation, but at the same point in time, you need to have regulation that protects consumers competition in the marketplace and, and and that we thought that there was a new structure that was possible to do that i should say a new proven structure a structure that has proven itself to be agile workable and flexible but what it needs in the behavioral side is also an enforcement an expectation and enforcement tool but do you view these these problems around, you know, data privacy, antitrust, misinformation that we've seen from from this hands-off regulatory environment where uh, of social media is as like a distinct set of problems, or is it self-reinforcing and, and interconnected? The digital companies for the last couple of decades have engaged in what I call the big con where they have <clears throat> said to government, oh, don't dare touch us because what <laughs> we do is magic and you don't understand it. And if you were to touch that, you'd break the magic. And because of the fact that like 
the people they represent, the vast majority of legislators in particular, did not understand the full ramifications or implications of digital technology. That line sold. I mean, I was, when I was chairman, I was constantly being hit. Oh, you want to regulate the internet and you want to destroy this. They had this great, this great two word description, permissionless innovation. We were able to bring all of these great things because we didn't have to ask anybody's permission. Right. Nobody's ever been suggesting that this is like drugs where you've got to have government permission before you can bring it out. But we're saying is you need to have some responsibilities. I mean, it's fascinating to me. I had a, a, a secretary, Ash Carter, assembled a lunch at Harvard a couple of years ago of, of a whole bunch of, of us to sit down with Eric Schmidt and, 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 and he and I, Schmidt and I engaged, shall we say, when he made the permissionless innovation argument. And I note that yesterday he talked specifically about how social media platforms prioritize outrage because that's how you prioritize profits. And, and when he was at Google, of course, they were running that social media platform called YouTube. And, but, but the point of the matter is that you need to establish what are the ground rules and when, and, and the situation that we have been in is that we have let the innovators make the rules and when they make the rules, they make them to favor themselves, not to protect competition, not to protect consumers, not to worry about truth and trust. And so we shouldn't be surprised at what we're discovering, but likewise, we shouldn't be sitting back and allowing that to define the future. It is time for us to step up and say that there are public interest responsibilities in this incredibly, I mean, we're talking about the most powerful and pervasive platform in the history of the planet. There, I've got my, my, my alliteration down for the day, but when we're talking about something that is, that is that pervasive and that powerful, it, it can't be allowed to make its own rules. So then how do we balance allowing Silicon Valley to build cool new technology and, and push, push the frontiers of social media? I mean, you're seeing now this, this decentralized crypto web three revolution too, right? There's, there's a lot of new technology come out here as well as at the same time, keep up with the regulation that we have and, and balance sort of the innovation with the regulation. Well, that's the heart of our proposal where you need to, you need to step away from the old regulatory micromanagement, identify risks, manage to them and do it in an agile manner. One of the things that our, I said a minute ago that we, the, 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 the statutes are written based on industrial realities. It's actually beyond that. The agencies that were created by those statutes were structured around management concepts of the industrial era 
that are no longer valid. I mean, I mean, think back. What was, how did you manage in the industrial era? Well, you had a guy and it was a guy. You had a guy on the shop floor who followed a set of rules to do a job as the conveyor process moved down or whatever. He was supervised by a manager to make sure that he was following the rules. The manager was supervised by a supervisor who looked at a whole bunch of managers. And then you had on top of that, a corporate structure spread out of, across multiple plants where everybody was always checking on everybody else and whether they were following the rules. So we end up with, and that was the, that was the management structure of the 19th and 20th centuries. Today, you have what's called agile management. I mean, nobody runs companies that way anymore, particularly the digital companies. You need to have a product that is continually evolving as technology evolves. You need to, to have a product that evolves as the marketplace uh, evolves. You put out an MVP, a minimally viable product, and then keep improving it. We need to bring that same kind of thinking to the regulatory environment that the the, it is a phony argument to say, we're going to have to walk away from any regulation because it inhibits, it inhibits innovation. We need to be saying what, how do we define de define regulation so that it protects innovation and protects consumers and competition and truth at the same time. And I think that's possible, but we got to quit thinking like we always thought and think imaginatively. So I'd love to get your take on if you can role play as actually heading up this regulator a year ago, right? Where we are now a year past the January 6th, 2021 insurrection on Capitol Hill, which in many ways was instigated by information that was spread on social media. So if this regulator existed a year ago, what does agile regulation look like before January 6th and potentially after January 6th in terms of then trying to sh make sure that there is trust and verifiable information on the internet? That's a great question, Jin. And, and I, again, I, so I am a frustrated historian. And, and, and so I think that we can learn a lot by connecting the dots of history. The situation that we're in with social media is is moves faster and and is more expansive than we've seen before but profiting from lies and misinformation is an old american tradition and and you think back to yellow journalism all right william randolph hearst joseph pulitzer all of these guys the would, would the name of the game was selling newspapers not telling the truth and, and interestingly enough, how did that stop? In 1923, there was an organization, 1922, the organization was formed, the American Newspaper Society of Newspaper Editors. And in 1923, they came out with a code of conduct and they said, truth counts. We have a first responsibility. And. And that began to put parameters around their bosses. Now that was a gutsy move. 
that here were employees saying, no, we need to stand up and have standards. The problem today is that the editors in the early 20th century had a conscience. Algorithms have no conscience. And so the question becomes, how do we have that same kind of a code that says this is how we're going to operate? And that brings us back to the digital platform agency and the use of this technical standard-like process to develop enforceable behavioral standards. Do you think there's a way for us to incentivize social media platforms to be more competitive and and have that competition yield better outcomes? So, so the way I'm thinking about it, for example, is if you look at switching your phone number from AT&T to Verizon or T-Mobile, right. that has its own oligopolistic problems, but at least it's generally seamless to do that. In fact, they'll give you a free phone if you do sometimes. Whereas switching social media networks, it's, it's just difficult. I, I have to rebuild my following on Facebook or Twitter or TikTok or whatever, and it's, it's starting from scratch all the time. That increases lock-in into those platforms and decreases their incentive to maybe improve. Totally. I mean, there, so let's go back. So, so Mark Zuckerberg created Facebook famously at Harvard, right? <clears throat> and he took on MySpace was the dominant platform at that point in time. MySpace was owned in large part by Rupert Murdoch. Okay. So you're not exactly dealing with some kind of a, another dorm room project, wow, right? I didn't know that. Wow. And he beat them. And why did he beat them? He beat them with good old fashioned, my product is better than yours. <clears throat> if you and I, if we were going to have the Jim Drew and Tom platform today, that we have this great idea of a better product, we have little hope that we could ever compete with Facebook because the asset necessary for that competition, which is all of the information on three and a half billion users, which is what informs the algorithms that allow the targeting, which is what advertisers buy. The three of us, we could have, we could have a hundred million users and have a really successful business in that regard. And we would still be losing adver advertising competition to the folks that have a lot more and therefore can add a lot more uh, targeting. So, so. The key to all of this is the asset of the 21st century, which is data. And you talk about number portability, for instance, for cell phones, which makes all the sense in the world and increased competition in the cellular industry. But we need more than data portability in the internet world. We need open data. We need the ability to have, to, to, to say that, that when we come along with our idea for a new service, that the data that is, has been collected by consumers, if they agree to it, can be made available to us as well. Doesn't have to be free, right? <clears throat> but there's an interesting trial of this concept that has been happening for the last several years in the UK. 
the the UK government told the nine largest banks that they had to open up the data on their users because the fact that they were hoarding that data behind Chinese walls <clears throat> meant that new innovators couldn't come along and say, well, I, let me, let me sell you a product that, that helps integrate your, your, your data in the bank with your data in the insurance company and your credit cards and all this sort of stuff and provide you a new service. And, and the government said, no, you have to open that data. And they did. And today there are 300 new service providers that are using that open data to provide competitive services. And now get ready for it. Guess what? Number one, the nine biggest banks suddenly became very competitive in their new offerings. And number two, the banks that weren't the nine largest realized they had to do it too so that they could be able to compete. So if we view data as the capital asset of the 21st century, and if we decided back in the 19th century that, for instance, Rockefeller shouldn't be able to hoard all the oil in the country, then uh, we ought to have the same kind of thinking that says that you shouldn't have a handful of companies that can hoard all of the 21st century assets. And so you're talking about opt-in from the user's perspective. Is that correct? So, yes, I think that the user ought to have the right to say, yes, I want my data to be available elsewhere. And that the companies have the responsibility to provide that kind of, of openness to the asset, which is what gives them their marketplace power in the first place. So it's really interesting that you brought up the UK because we're definitely seeing other regulators, right, in other jurisdictions in the European Union, in the UK, and actually increasingly even in China, taking right. on some of these questions right. and actually enacting regulations. What are ideas or proposals and actual in, uh, enacted regulations besides the one that you just talked about in the UK that you think are really promising that here in the US we could adopt? Well, here's the tragedy. Well, let me go beyond that question. The tragedy is that the United States of America has lost its world leadership position because we've sat on our hands as a result of this big con. And the rest of the world is defining expectations. There are two parts of that that are important. Number one is that in an interconnected society, the rules that the others make about being able to interconnect in their country have an impact in this country. GDPR is the classic example. Second part is that if we are not providing leadership, then those rules are going to be made based on assumptions that may not be consistent with American ideals. For instance, both the UK and the EU have are, are strong believers in free speech, but they define free speech very differently 
than we do here. Much more limited. And in a world where interconnection means that the rules that apply to one are rules that apply to all, are we as Americans ready to have free speech on the internet defined by Germany? And, and so, but, but this is the consequence, this is the cost of us failing to act here. I, I, and the companies, and this will have a, a, a negative effect on the companies. I, I wrote a piece for Brookings on this in, in which it began the, the piece by quoting Oscar Wilde and his great line that he's got in Lady Windermere's fan, which is there are two great tragedies in life, not getting what you want and getting it. Will the lobbies of the tech companies have gotten everything they want because nothing has happened in the United States at the federal level. And so what are they seeing? They're seeing the EU, the UK, and China making the new rules. And they're seeing California, Colorado, Vermont end up making rules that are specific to their state, which inhibits their national reach. And, and at some point in time, they're going to be hoisted. They, they have been hoisted on their own petard. So uh, now that, uh, you're back outside of the FCC and at places like Harvard and Brookings and working with students and advising others on the very many different kinds of experiences you've had in career, um, including working in the private sector for decades before actually becoming chair of the FCC. How do you think young people should think about the question of, hey, everything you described right now sounds really interesting, and I have some ideas and things that I want to do to try to shape that policy to work at this regulator they are proposing. What's next for me? Do I go try to go to Capitol Hill, try to find a job there? Do I go work in the tech industry and gain industry experience before I do that? Do I go and get more degrees or more schooling? What would your advice be? Yeah. The first is stop, take a deep breath. You've got a lot of time ahead of you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and, and the decision that you make today or in three years from now is not going to be a final decision. And so I, so I would say, follow what excites you. Follow your bliss. What is it that turns you on and then go out. And if it's, if it's working on Capitol Hill, go do it. If it's working inside a company and learning about, you know, how to run a company and read a balance sheet and, and, and worry about different kinds of debt and all this sort of stuff, go do it. If it's to work inside of a federal agency, go do it. If it's to get another degree, go do it because you've got plenty of time. And the, the experience that I've had, I mean, I, I have been. I have been blessed in my life with a, a plethora of opportunities, all of which sought me out because I was having experiences that opened me to them. And so to just start out, go when in doubt, 
go ahead. And then the next step will become evident. There's too much of this. Well, I've got to do this. I, I used to have people come to me and say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to get this job and then I'm going to go on Capitol Hill and I'm going to get that job. And then I'm going to go out and I'm going to go back to my home state and I'm going to get, become a, a school board member. And then I'm going to become a city council member. And then I'm going to run for Congress. And folks, it doesn't work that way. Okay. <laughs> you cannot sit down and plan out every step along the way. You just have to say, this is what I believe in. This is what turns me on. This is what I want to do. Go do your best at it and see what happens next. Hey, those plans bring us, bring us a lot of comfort though. It's, it's, it feels nice to have things planned out, but you didn't have that experience. Things just kind of came to you. Correct. Believe me, I went to the Ohio State University. I was in graduate school. I got involved in politics. I came to Washington. I went to work for the grocery manufacturers of America. That's a pretty long way from technology. All right. And one thing led to another. So just make yourself available for that. How did that experience of going from, I guess, the grocery manufacturers of America to building telecom companies like the first company to offer high-speed internet, how, how does that shape your, your thinking on your role as you shift from building this technology and putting it out there to regulating and, yeah. and then being on completely other side of the, yeah. other side of the coin there? Good question. I mean, I think there's a couple of parts. Number one, if you see from the inside how technology companies work, it can only help but inform you. It is different to live it versus read about it, number one. Number two is um, I always thought that my management experience was really helpful to me at the FCC. The FCC has traditionally been populated by lawyers and former congressional staffers. Nothing against any of those people, good people, skilled people. But I think I was the first guy in years who would ever run anything. And, and you look at the world differently based on those experiences. Can you give an example? Well, so you keep referencing the, the, the first high-speed delivery of, of, of digital services over cable lines. That company failed. Okay. It's wow. called NABU, N-A-B-U, the home computer network. It failed because it failed for many reasons, but one of them was that we couldn't get on cable systems. You, they, they had a monopoly, a local monopoly, and they would pick and choose what, who got on. Well, that's a net neutrality issue, mm -hmm. right? I mean, um, so subsequent companies that I was started or was in, was involved with were involved in, in video programming. I, I, I was the CEO and, and, and started the company that delivered the first digital video for cable system for local cable production and the first satellite delivery of digital video. And the key to that company was again, access to the cable operators. That's a net neutrality question. I knew the information, the data, that digital systems were creating about insights into who's using it and everything else. That's a privacy question. I mean, these are all the, the, 
the job of a regulator is to assess the market that he or she sees at that point in time and to determine what are the public interest issues involved. And when you have lived in the middle of that, you have a pretty good feeling for what some of those issues are. And so, so you've firsthand seen that disconnect between regulators, lawmakers, and private technology developers. As folks who are maybe trying to bridge that divide, what advice do you have to get these things to work together? It's not going to happen overnight. <laughs> and you got to just go at it, go at it, go at it. And, and this goes back to the question of get, okay, when you guys graduate, what are you going to do? I would suggest that just the fact that you, that we, the three of us are talking right now would suggest to me that neither of you are going to sit on your hands and muzzle yourselves. Okay. And I think that that's a good place to start. So as we wrap up, our final question for this podcast is, so the name of the podcast is called How Tech Becomes Law. So given your experience, how have you seen a technology and its design create new rules for how society operates? Well, I'm basically a network guy, right? And I used to always say how we connect defines who we are. And I wrote a book called From Gutenberg to Google, The History of Our Future, which talked about the great network revolutions and how they redefined commerce and culture and how there were so many similarities. One, they built on top of each other. Two, the incumbents always got pissed off and pushed back and tried to kill them. Okay. Three, the winners were always those who stepped out and took the risk and said, I'm going, I, I have a vision. I'm going to build that. And, and, and so it seems to me as though, and, and fourth, I guess the law always catches up late. I mean, there is a, there is a given in history, particularly since the industrial era, that new technology comes along, the innovators make the rules and the innovators get to keep making the rules until you reach a point where the, where the public interest ends up being negatively affected. And, and that's where we are right now. And so it's a time for leadership for policymakers. It's a time for leadership from the companies to do more than just say, no, 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 I'm against everything. And it's a time of leadership and opportunity for your generation to say, we are a digital generation. We understand what's going on. We've had the training and now back to the point that you were asking earlier and we're going to do something about it. Tom, that was incredible. Thank you so much for joining. We really appreciate it. And thank you for listening. I'm Dhruv Gupta with Jinyan Zhang, and this was How Tech Becomes Law. 
Thanks for listening to How Tech Becomes Law. We are supported by the Public Interest Tech Lab. You can find us online at howtechbecomeslaw.org and on social media channels at techbecomeslaw. The music for this podcast was produced by Clarence Yap. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps other listeners discover us. Thanks again for listening and come back next week for another conversation on how tech becomes law.